How's everybody this morning? What a, what a blessing. Uh, didn't Artie do a great job leading, or leading us in worship? Art, you know, had, um, uh, Ari and Waya and, uh, you know, the Joel, the, that kid over there. He's great. Um, now it was a blessing. We missed Pastor Clint, but it's, uh, it's been a, uh, it's so great when Ari gets to lead us. Uh, she's just got such a great voice. Um, so this morning, we will be in Luke 139. You'll notice they have, we had one candle lit last week. Now we light two this week, and then each week of Advent, we'll light another candle. We'll talk more about that as we come up to it, but that last one is Christmas Eve. It's going to be a very special night, and I really want to encourage everybody to join us on Christmas Eve. Um, I've always found that uh, a Christmas Eve service, there's just a special intimacy that takes place and so I really want to encourage you to, uh, to join us and worship with us together then. So Luke 1, we're going to start in uh, verses, uh, verse 39. We're going to go on to verse 56. And uh, we are continuing in the journey of Mary's pregnancy, and, uh, which is a very interesting pre pregnancy. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of this, but there's been no other pregnancy in history like it. All right. In those days, it says, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is he should, she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and his name is holy. Or holy is his name, most of the translations say. Blessed, or I'm sorry, and mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and his thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham his, and his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Our holy God, we once again gather and call out to you from our broken and needy and unworthy place here. Our world is broken and disjointed, and yet you have revealed hope, given us promises of great joy, and have demonstrated that you do not forget us. We've rejected your very image by expressing hatred towards one another. And thank you, Lord, that you have overcome that. 
and you have promised to restore it all to its former perfection in which you created it and in which we have corrupted it. Thank you for sending Jesus into our messy world as one of us to dwell with us and to suffer and die in our place. Thank you for his promised return. Look upon us sinners with mercy, O Lord, and be compassionate towards us as you were when you sent your only begotten Son. So we humbly now submit ourselves to you. We give you our hearts and our minds and our attention. You are our good God. And we now open your holy scriptures this morning that we might learn from you and know you more through what you have given us to know you by. We give this time over to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, the theme of the second week of Advent would traditionally be preparation. And so this morning, I'd like for us to attempt to place ourselves in the context of Mary and Elizabeth in first century Israel, the Palestinian region, as they prepare for the coming of the promises already growing inside of each of them. Let us keep in mind that we're not entering this cute little precious moments nativity scene as probably anything but cute at this point. They didn't even have running water. Uh, they didn't have all the hair and beauty products that we have today. Uh, they, they spent a lot of time outdoors in a Mediterranean climate, and it would be a few years before central air was available to common people. And there was perfume, but it was very expensive, so people like Mary and Joseph likely did not regularly have the privilege of covering up their natural kind of Mediterranean musk, let's say. Uh, that, and, and they carried that with them. Mary and Joseph are poor, probably not totally impoverished, maybe a bit what would be the equivalent in that day of a lower middle class family. They were Jews, they were suffering over Roman rule, who, and they were looking forward to the independence of Israel, which incidentally wouldn't happen for about 1950 years in 1948, in the month of May. The last attempt at independence had been over 150 years prior with the Maccabean Revolt. So they were, in their minds, living under an oppressive military regime. Now, let's take a moment and fast forward to the Civil War in the United States. Famous poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow had lost his wife when her dress tragically caught fire a couple of years before. The abolitionist Longfellow was sitting in his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, contemplating the state of the broken world around him when he received word that his son was severely wounded by a Confederate bullet at the Battle of New Hope Church. Longfellow then took the role of caregiver while his son suffered a long and slow recovery. And on Christmas morning, he heard the, Christian, the Christmas bells, the church bells ringing. And he wrestled with the message of the angels proclaiming, peace on earth, goodwill to men. What peace? What goodwill? All that can be seen is pain and suffering. How is there any hope in the condition of the world around us? And that's when he first penned the words of the famous Christmas carol, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. 
I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And the bells are ringing like a choir they're singing, and in my heart I hear them, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the bells are ringing like a choir singing. Does anybody hear them? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail when peace on earth or with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And the bells they're ringing, like a choir they're singing, and with our hearts we'll hear them. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Do you hear the bells they're ringing? The light, the angels singing. Open up your heart and hear them. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. The world that Jesus entered through Mary was not that different from Longfellow's day or from our world today. It is disjointed and broken. And the angel Gabriel announces good news of great joy to Mary that may not have seemed like very good news at the time. At some point, she has to tell her fiancé, whom she's betrothed to, whom she had not had sexual contact with, that she's pregnant. Like, that's a bad day for anybody. Imagine Joseph's response for, to this explanation. Well, you see, Joseph, um, an angel visited me in the night, and I'm pregnant. That line wasn't any more believable 2,000 years ago than it is now. <laughs> Maybe even less, because today, if that's what you believe, well, it must be true for you, and who am I to argue? They didn't have that argument back then. Poor Joseph. Poor Joseph. Can you imagine what he must have been going through? Like, I hope he's getting bonus points in heaven. He was a good sport, wasn't he? Like, he didn't shame her. He, 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 he believed the angel that came to him. And he raises Jesus as his own and teaches him his trade. In this case, the story is true. Mary is a virgin who is miraculously pregnant with baby Jesus, who would grow to die in our place, to raise himself from the dead, and, and to promise to return. And Luke skips this part about Joseph, but you can read about that in Matthew 1, and I certainly encourage you to do so. But from here in Luke to the end of the chapter, the narrative takes on a, a musical quality. These are psalms of praise. Mary finds herself in a situation that would be painted in very scandalous terms in her hometown of Nazareth. And so I don't know if she to tells Joseph before she goes, but she splits and heads south. Um, and she possibly, maybe she waited until she came back and she kind of has to explain the baby bump. She's like, well, Joseph, mm, I'll tell you a little story. 
Luke and Matthew, uh, they, they emphasize different elements of Christ's conception and birth. So it's a little difficult to kind of reconstruct the order between the two. Um, some of it, most of it, we, we can reconstruct pretty easily. Nevertheless, Mary hightails it out of Nazareth to go spend time with her relative Elizabeth. Verse 39 of Luke 1, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. There's some places where they believe Elizabeth's house to have been, uh, and they've built churches there and in places where they think that these things occurred. I'm not sure of the merit of any of these things, but that's what's out there. Let's go to verse 41. Verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of the womb. Now listen, John was filled with the Spirit and leaped inside the womb. And now we, we see Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit, and she also rejoices. Do we see a theme here? The Spirit is drawing them into joy. And that is because joy transcends circumstance. And, and it only works that way because God sovereignly intervenes in our situations. Let's go back to verse 15 of chapter 1 and see what uh, is said about John in his fetal state. You'll remember Brad Dacus covered this passage. It says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So notice, John is filled with the Holy Spirit here when Mary shows up, and what does he do as a spirit-filled fetus? He leaps in her womb. He rejoices. Then later, Jesus would say this of John in Luke 7, 28. Jesus would say, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So the correct response to the presence of Jesus is here expressed by the greatest prophet from the womb. And that response is to rejoice. He is rejoicing. Now I need to bring up a, a very sensitive social issue here because this passage does speak strongly to it. I want you to notice a few things about John. Number one, John is alive. He's human. He's a person, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. All of this while he's in Elizabeth's womb. That's pretty darn good for a lump of tissue, isn't it? By today's standard, he was a pretty good candidate for abortion, especially because his mother was so old it could be dangerous for her. One more thing about John. He was not just part of Elizabeth. He... First, he had his own name, but he also had his own body, which was inside of Elizabeth. He had his own unique DNA and personal features, his own unique blood type and fingerprints. And he had those from the point of fertilization. Now, this may seem like a rabbit trail, but it's extremely important because with all the political violence and divisive rhetoric, social media fights, homelessness, immigration issues, everything else we face in our nation, the genocide taking place in the privacy of places that we dare to call medical clinics is by far the most troubling. They're all troubling, by the way. 
And Jesus has called us to justice. Before I go any further, I want to make something very clear, though. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. In fact, where sin is great, mercy is greater. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. It is not the unforgivable sin, and God, God desires to forgive great sins. But that doesn't make feticide any less egregious. You remember when I put up uh, over the summer uh, the image of a body of a, of a Syrian boy who had drowned trying to flee with his family? It was a, it was a disturbing and deeply troubling image to everyone here. And there's a good reason for that. The death of a child is the darkest proof of evil on this earth. One of my dearest friends, uh, a law enforcement officer in Palm Springs, and he's responded to numerous child deaths. He said this, it's one thing to see a dead adult, but a child is a whole different thing. It's not right to see a dead child. It haunts you. You always ask, why did this happen? Later he told me, you start seeing your own child laying there. Now I want to give credit where credit's due. I look up to my friend Sean for his work and what he does. He actually suffered some very severe trauma with a horrible shooting out there a few years ago. And he, he is just one of my heroes. He continues to serve in this capacity. And, and it's him actually that brought me to a Bible study that long before... God had called me into ministry. God used this study to begin preparing my heart for ministry. It's more than 25 years ago. We were flying buddies. We went to college together and uh, just had so much fun. But he has just had a profound impact life. And so, Sean, if you are watching, uh, I love you, brother. I heard those uh, same haunting words. You see your own child lying there. Uh, a few years ago when I was serving as a chaplain and uh, a police chaplain in, in New York, and I, I sat all evening with an offer that, officer that had unsuccessfully tried to resuscitate an infant just hours earlier. He described fighting for the baby's life like it was his own child because that's what it feels like. Our own Charlie Branscombe, love this guy, um, he, uh, he shared his experience with me of uh, an accidental shooting where a 14-year-old had killed a 10-year-old with a shotgun. He said it's one of the most, uh, uh, the, the one incident that stands out most. And, and years later, as he's recalling this to me, I could hear the emotion in his voice as he recalled going in and then preventing a friend of his who had a son the same age, uh, who was also a law enforcement officer, from going in. He protected him from that. Charlie said, from the moment that trigger was pulled, every life in that house was changed. Not just the lives that were there when it happened, but firefighters, paramedics, police officers, detectives, everybody's lives were changed. Thank you for sharing that, Charlie, by the way. Um, this is the world we live in. We live in a fallen and broken world. What peace? What goodwill. How can we sing joy to this world? 
And yet every day, people who call themselves doctors violate their oath to preserve life by taking the lives of thousands of prenatal persons and discarding them as medical waste. Jesus was at least six months younger than John. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months, so she must have been ready to give birth when, when, when Mary left. We don't have any indication that John was born when Mary was there, so in all likelihood, Mary was really in the first few weeks of her pregnancy. She was an unwed pregnant teen, perhaps about 13 years old. She was poor, unmarried, educated. Jesus was the perfect candidate for abortion by today's standards. Believe it or not, they had abortion back then. It was also acceptable to give birth and to leave a baby exposed to die. And actually, that was safer for the mother usually. But God's people have always valued children. God's people have always valued life in the womb. Clement of Rome, who, who actually knew Paul the Apostle personally, described the womb as a place where the embryo is cherished. The early Christians that we call the church fathers railed against abortion and exposure and commended those who would rescue abandoned babies. In fact, the early Christians were well known for rounding up these exposed babies and raising them as their own. Oh, oh that we would be known for doing that today. Oh, that we would be known for going out, lining up to be licensed for foster care and adoption to go to women who feel like they have no other choice and say, I will give you a choice. I will help you. We'll help your medical bills. We'll, we'll, we'll adopt your baby. We'll give you a place to live. We will help because we love you and we love your baby. Oh, that we would be known for that. In about the fourth century, Augustine describes a procedure that is almost exactly like our modern-day D&E abortion procedure without the benefit of mechanical suction. He describes it as the young who are cut out limb by limb for the, from their womb, and his attitude is, the, is it an unspeakable evil. But we see right here in this passage that John and Jesus both, Jesus even in the few, first few weeks of pregnancy, we see them being described as persons in the womb. And we must re receive what God has revealed. From the moment of conception, there is an image bearer of God to be celebrated, cherished, and protected. Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. There's another prophet that we see God active with in the womb, Jeremiah. I'm sure you've heard this passage, Jeremiah 1, 4 and 5. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God appointed Jeremiah as a prophet to the nations while he was still in the womb. Psalm 71, 5 and 6. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust. O Lord, from my youth, upon you have I leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. I, my praise is continually for me, for, of you. rather. The psalmist expresses his reliance on God from the womb. 
There's no question that the divinely inspired Word of God teaches that babies in the womb, like John and Jesus here, are persons who bear the image of the everlasting God. And working backwards logically, that means that the support of destroying that child is evil. In other words, support of abortion, the right to terminate the image of God in its most innocent and vulnerable state is anti-God. It's satanic. And so many have been seduced into believing that it's nothing but a lump of cells. There's a reason that I spent so much time on this. During this Advent season this year, our Supreme Court has been hearing a case that puts Roe v. Wade on the hot seat. And we need to be praying on our knees that God would use this to begin the process of healing this land of what we have been doing. It's possible that the, the, uh, they won't rule until summer, but if they do rule the pieces of Roe v. Wade to be unconstitutional, that could mean that 27 states are ready right now to make abortion illegal in their states. That's not going to solve all of the issues, but man, that'll save a lot of lives, won't it? It's a start. Let's pray. Let us pray. Now, I made some of you uncomfortable, I know, but part of our mission as Christians is to participate in God's redemptive purposes. That doesn't just mean this spiritual, otherworldly salvation. Yes, it includes that, but the gospel message includes justice here and now too. It's not to neglect the eternal mission, but we cannot disconnect our spiritual lives from our physical environments. And there are a lot of justice issues we can participate in, but none is greater than the war on the unborn. And what greater time to address the issue of justice, this particular one, than the time that we commemorate the preparation for the birth of our Lord, the time we celebrate Mary's pregnancy. Here in verse 42, Elizabeth is singing a song of celebration over Mary's presence bearing our Lord inside of her. And this is because Elizabeth has been filled with the Holy Spirit. So her celebration is a supernatural celebration. I think a lot of Christians mistakenly see the Holy Spirit as a, as a source to titillate their superstitions, kind of like a psychic that the Bible's okay with. But the Holy Spirit has defined purposes in his activities. He's powerful. He works today, but it's not just this random magical activity that he does. In fact, here's a great example in Acts 1, Acts 1.8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, there's a purpose here. In our case here in Luke, the result of the Spirit filling Elizabeth was to proclaim a prophetic blessing towards Mary. It's, it's a very specific purpose. And Luke doesn't tell us how Elizabeth knows that Mary's pregnant. It's not like she posted on Facebook and Instagram, like her little baby pics next to the mirror, right? It's not like she did that, right? It's entirely possible that somewhere in here, Mary told Elizabeth the whole story about Gabriel 
and what he had said about her bearing a son, even though she's a virgin. I don't think that was it, though. I don't think that happened. I think what happened was that the Holy Spirit was involved just like he was in the rest of the situation, and Elizabeth just knew. This is what she says in verse 43. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. I would contend that this is a bold confession on the part of Elizabeth, which is the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's only the work of the Holy Spirit that give us that kind of faith. I don't dare take credit for what God has done. I'm a Christian not because I went chasing after God, looking for him and trying to be saved. I'm a Christian because God overcame me and he worked faith in me. We typically hear, this is the kind of the tension that we have as church leaders. We typically won't baptize a child under about 12 or so. We do sometimes, but typically not. Because even though the Holy Spirit knows, even though God knows where that person's heart is, even though if that child is saved, the Holy Spirit has been working in that person, probably from the womb, we have to kind of use our own senses to evaluate that. Now, there are times that the Holy Spirit will reveal that to us, and we will, we will certainly baptize somebody much younger, but we need to, you know, ensure that their confession of faith is sincere, kind of to the best of our abilities, because we don't want to take these things flippantly. They're very sacred. But that doesn't mean that they're not Christians, and that God has not saved them, is not, was not working in them long, long ago, even from their womb. In fact, Psalm 22.10 says this, On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Huh. Sounds like a saved in utero baby right there to me. And so here we see that prenatal John had sound doctrine by the power of the Holy Spirit when he leaped inside of her. It's interesting that the awareness uh, of a baby that, that they have inside of the womb. Have you noticed that? that? That they can respond with emotion. Those women who have been pregnant, right? You, you know this. They'll often respond to their mother's voice or their father's voice. And that's why they say it's good to talk to the baby while you're pregnant, uh, read to them, play classical music is one of those things they say. Uh, Nicholas and Anna were little prenatal party animals, but Anna was tricky. She, this girl would like, she would move around and stuff, and then she would just stop moving for like five or six days. And it was like terrifying. It was the most terrifying thing, especially for Denise. I was always like, oh, she'll be fine. Denise was like, hey, I don't know what's going on. And Nicholas, on the other hand, this kid would not stop moving. Like, he was... I would talk and he would like try to jump out like she like you would see him moving right and and you know it was crazy to this day this kid has me on this like totally unearned pedestal I don't know where he, but he hears my voice when I get home after work and he'll just bowl everything over to get to me and he comes and he grabs me and he'll grab my legs and like squeeze them together and then I it's like being roped like you're about to fall and so it's just you know he's just a crazy kid and he loves me so much um, and I just don't deserve that level of love but it's so special to know that he knew my voice even before he was born 
And that happened here. Although it wasn't a voice in this case, John knew that he was in the presence of Jesus. Oh, oh, that we would have the same excitement when we come to worship our King. Elizabeth knew her Lord was in the womb of Mary. Where did she get the insight? The Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the source of all truth. This is what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John 16. You can turn there. John chapter 16. We're going to read a few verses. But I said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Elizabeth recognized the lordship of prenatal Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only was Jesus a human person from, from the point of fertilization, he continued to be eternal God even in his most vulnerable human state. And then Elizabeth ha has this profound realization. Not only is Mary blessed, but Elizabeth, she recognizes, is also blessed because she gets to participate. She not only gets to observe this miracle, but she also gets to raise the one whom would proclaim Jesus as he begins his earthly ministry, the one who would usher in Messiah through proclamation. Luke 1.45. Luke 1.45. says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. How many worship songs do we have that praise God because we get to participate in his purposes on earth? I wish we would write more of those. If any of you write mu music, just think about that. Because God's calling for our participation is what makes us so blessed. Elizabeth believed that God would fulfill his purposes in her, and she considered herself blessed for it. And then we get into the section of the text called the Magnificat. It's, it just means an utterance of praise, but it's a title that we've given to Mary's song here. She says in verse 46, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Chapter 1 and 2 of Luke are filled with hymns of praise. In fact, we might conclude that we commemorate the incarnation of our Lord at this season every year as a function of praise. We, we don't actually know the exact day, 
very unlikely it's December 25th. There are some theories out there about late spring and early fall. They're probably good theories. But that said, we have to set this time aside for honoring the fact that he came. We, the best we can tell, it was actually a pagan holiday on December 25th. And the Christians wouldn't celebrate that, so they just used the day to honor the birth of Jesus. And here we are, 2,000 years later, celebrating Jesus. And where are the pagans? Jesus wins. I'm fine hijacking those holidays. That's good. Right? She brings up her soul and her spirit. And we can take that to mean that she's affected and she responds in praise both physically and spiritually. And she recognizes that who she bears is the one who brings salvation to her. Now that kind of kills the Roman Catholic idea that Mary is somehow a co-redemptress. Like, the one needing salvation cannot be the one who saves. Can you imagine you're like dead on a cliff, and, that, and you go get a helicopter and fly it over and rescue yourself and then do CPR on yourself and then, rescue, and, and then you, you save yourself? That doesn't work, right? Because the Bible doesn't talk about rescue of like, from peril. It talks about rescue rescue, resuscitation from death as the message of salvation. No. The one needing salvation cannot be the one saving. So it also removes the possibility of what's called the Immaculate Conception. This is a doctrine that teaches that Mary was born without original sin. It's not in the Bible. Listen, if she didn't have a sin nature, why is she calling Jesus her Savior? What did she need saving from? Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. There's great humility in Mary's words. She's turning the attention now to God's character. When we read the Bible, we need to remember that this is first a book about God, that he's employed to reveal his character so that we might bring him glory. It gives instruction on how we're to honor him, which is consequently what is best for us. But we must not fall in the era of, uh, 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 that, that makes God's word all about us. It can only lead to pride in our theology. We need to be mindful that we do not make the scriptures about us, thereby making God about us. God did not create us because he needed somebody to please. God created us so that we would exist to please him. He made us for his good pleasure. And since he wants us to please him, hey, I think we ought to desire to be pleasing to him. And she recognizes, Mary recognizes that she's blessed despite her marginalized condition. She's in no way venerating herself here. She's blessed not because of anything she has done, but because the mighty one, God, has blessed her. She's not the source of any special grace, but is blessed because she has received a special grace from God. And then she quickly moves the narrative from herself and points to the character of God. Here in verse 50, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalt has and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. See, we, th we see a theme of God's might and strength dominating this 
section of Mary's song. And in the, the specific context is referring to God's redemptive acts on behalf of Israel in the past. Mary uses this to, as a springboard to contrast the might of God to the strength of humanity. And this is important because we tend to be proud little humans, don't we? Pride is an internal problem, and it, it occurs in the, in the depths of our souls, and it affects every area of our lives. So a reminder that God is mighty should, should humble us. When I was sick with COVID, Denise thought that I might die. I never really thought that, but apparently it wasn't off the table. So I prayed for my family. I prayed for Denise that she would not have to raise our kids on her own. Then I prayed for our kids, and I prayed that they would not have to grieve me and live without their dad. And part of my prayer was rooted in this fear that they would not thrive as well without me, that I wanted to continue to have some control over their upbringing because I know what's best for them. And folks, let me tell you something that is pure, unadulterated pride on my part, and I confess it. So God, in that moment, sent the Holy Spirit in the form of a fire chief. Mark Lamont came into my room to do whatever he was to keep me alive, you know, and he comes in and I'm kind of sharing this prayer with him and, and all of that. I didn't want my kids to live without me. And the Holy Spirit filled Mark, who then sternly scolded me. Those are not your kids. They belong to God and he knows what's best for them. Mary's psalm flies in the face of pride. It is reminiscent of, of the many psalms that recall God's past victories over the inadequacy of the psalmist. She mentions thrones, which are symbols of authority and power, and that God has toppled those and contrasts that with satisfying the hungry with good things and removing wealth from the rich. And it's not making a value judgment on the wealthy or the powerful or the poor or the needy, but it's demonstrating that God has power over our circumstance, whether it be abundance or need. He's the one in control. If we're rich, he can take it away. If we're poor, he can give us to us abundantly above all we can ask or think. God has the authority over our circumstances. And here's, the, here's what that points to. Mary, back in verse 34, she had asked, in Luke 1.34, she asked, how will this be? And in verse 37, the angel answers her, nothing will be impossible with God. He's demonstrating, she, Mary is recognizing his power here. God is sovereign and we cannot subvert his will. The world is filled with all the, this pain and suffering and certainty and none of that can undo the perfect will of God and that is where we have hope. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, this may sound like a peculiar, peculiar word construction. We have some similar statements, though, in the Psalms and other New Testament, Old Testament passages, rather, where God remembers something about his character or his promises, or he remembers a person. It isn't that he forgot but that this is now the point in which he's turning his attention to that. The, the point is, when it says he remembers, the point is that he hadn't forgotten. 
He didn't delay because it was out of sight, out of mind, or because he had better things to do, but because his timing is perfect. The timing of Christ's incarnation was perfect. And we await his return. And that will occur in God's perfect timing. In fact, we're warned not to try to figure it out, but to be prepared like we saw last week. It says this, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. She continued living. Like we said last week, you know, we don't just, we don't wait for God by idly looking up. We wait for God we wait for Jesus by being like Jesus. Pro- promises would be unfolding for some time. The, corrupt, the conception or birth of Jesus was not the end game. In fact, his death, burial, and resurrection were not the end game. By that, that's what he used to secure our salvation by taking the due penalty for our sins upon himself, putting his perfection in our account. And he didn't just do that so that we could suffer here on earth for a little while and then escape far, far away to somewhere else. Because eventually he's coming back to restore it all to himself. And the context of our time of being prepared and awaiting the return of Christ. Genocide is celebrated as a reproductive right. Our churches are divided over politics and social issues. I lost more than six weeks from my new calling here, worried about my job, horribly sick, with my wife thinking that I was probably going to die. And one night before she took me to the emergency room, she had all the kids come in and hug me, all of them thinking it could be the last time that they ever saw me alive. I've suffered the loss of so many close friends and family members over the last couple of years. And we all have family members that are divided and don't speak to each other. Mostly over stupid things. Our country, our world is violent, broken, divided, needy, and it only seems to be devolving more. What peace? How can the birth of a child, one that so many today would think should have been aborted, bring great joy? Once again, Wadworth observed this in despair. He says, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But God upends that disjointedness with the miraculous conception of a baby boy. And what could we ever bring him? What could we ever offer him? We can only sing with the little drummer boy. I have no gift to bring. pa rum pa pum pum As Mary prepared her heart for the birth of this baby boy, hope entered the world. Hope that conquers fear. Hope that conquers pain. Hope that conquers hate and malice. Hope that overcomes the sting of death itself. Hope that reveals the very thoughts of God towards his human creation, each one of us, that bears his glorious image. As the little drummer boy said, then he smiled at me. His people bring him great delight. Because as Mary recognized, God had done a mighty work. And so we can then, in the midst of our dark and painful world, praise him with Longfellow's powerful powerful words, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth goodwill to men.
Let us prepare our hearts in great hopefulness for the impending promises of God because we remember his unending might and he never forgets his promises to his people. Let us pray. Holy God, thank you for the great hope of peace and joy that you have given. And only you could give. Prepare our hearts for this time that we remember the incarnation. For the return of our King, which you have promised. Make us ready, and yet help us to live redemptively. Holy God, help us to live redemptively as we join our loved ones this holiday season. Let us, let us shine brightly with the hope that Jesus brings and fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may rightly express the great joy that comes with being in the presence of our Savior. And help us to live redemptively as we see the great needs around us as we pray for peace in our troubled land, as we contend for the lives of prenatal persons, and as we go about our day-to-day -day lives, living day by day, but prepared for our coming, Lord. Holy God, we offer ourselves over to you as living sacrifices of praise. As we now close and enter our week, and our mission field. Equip us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.